Today we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. And so I invite you to turn the Bible to Hebrews chapter 8. If you did not bring a Bible but would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1208. Now Hebrews was written to Christians who had a Jewish background. They were Jewish Christians. So that means that many of them had grown up practicing Judaism, but at some point they had come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, some of these Jewish Christians were being deeply tempted to turn their back on Jesus, to go back to their old Jewish ways. They were facing immense pressure from the people around them. I can imagine their family or their friends or even the baker down at the market saying to them, what happened to you? You used to be such a good Jew. But then you became a Christian. You need to go back to your old ways. You need to return to your roots. Stop this nonsense. So they're facing pressure to abandon Jesus. Or at least to mix Judaism back into their practice of Christianity. You know, we face similar pressures. Maybe not from the Jewish perspective. But we too can face pressure to abandon Jesus. We too can face pressure to reshape Christianity to fit what is comfortable for us, or to reshape Christianity in a way that it fits what our world wants, or what our favorite source of media wants it to be. We need to constantly return our focus to the core of what Christianity is all about, and that is the focus of Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point of Hebrews 8 is that Jesus is a better priest who mediates a better covenant. The last few chapters in Hebrews, Jesus has been presented as a priest. A priest is someone who helps to be the go-between between people and God. And Hebrews has said that Jesus is a compassionate priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. At the same time, Jesus is a sinless priest which means he doesn't have his own sin to atone for. Yet Jesus is a generous priest because he gave himself up to be sacrificed for our sins. Jesus is a heavenly priest who ministers in the very presence of God. And Jesus is also an everlasting priest who will not be replaced by any other priests in the future. So in short, Jesus is the perfect priest. And Hebrews chapter 8 continues this theme of Jesus being the perfect priest. Let's read the first part of Hebrews 8, picking up in verse 1. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, the main point of Hebrews 8 is that Jesus is a better priest who mediates a better covenant. Now, Jewish Christians were familiar with priests. They would have interacted with priests probably on a regular basis, at least when they practiced Judaism. But Jesus is a categorically different priest. Let me illustrate what I mean by this idea of being categorically different. Imagine with me that you're at the Kennedy Space Center down in Florida. The Kennedy Space Center has a lot of rockets. It has a lot of exhibits about space travel. And imagine that there at the Kennedy Space Center that you encounter both a tour guide and an astronaut. Now, a tour guide could show you some neat things and tell you some good stories. And a tour guide could even take you to parts of the Space Center that you could not go without the tour guide. Yet, the role of an astronaut is categorically different than the role of a tour guide. A couple weeks ago, my dad took my son, Micaias, as well as my nephew, down to the Kennedy Space Center. And one day, one day while they were down there, I was eating lunch, and my dad texted this photo to me. It's my son, Micaias, with an astronaut. I quickly zoomed in on his name badge and found his Wikipedia page. I learned that this astronaut is a veteran of four space flights and has flown over 17 million miles. Now, looking at this photo of Micaias with an astronaut, some of you might be thinking, wow, that's real cool. That's really, really neat. Now, I bet that you would not have that same reaction if I showed you a photo of my son with a tour guide. Your reaction would probably be different, wouldn't it? Because there is a categorical difference between the role of an astronaut and the role of a tour guide. An astronaut can tell you firsthand about going into space, whereas the tour guide represents space travel. They can tell you, but not from firsthand experience. And similarly, there is a categorical difference between Jesus and between Israel's priests. We see this categorical difference in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 8. It says, We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. No other priest can make these claims. And when the priests in the Jewish temple were like tour guides. They served those who came to worship. They were a true benefit to the worshipers. They had a God-given role, but they were like tour guides representing God, representing the things of heaven. But Jesus is categorically different in that he actually ministers in the very presence of God. He doesn't just represent God. He is God, God the Son, ministering in the very presence of God in heaven. And this sets Jesus apart from every other priest in world history. And so the main point of Hebrews 8 
is that Jesus is a better priest who mediates a better covenant. Now let's focus on this idea of covenant. A covenant describes the obligations, describes the, the responsibilities that two parties have in a committed relationship with one another. In the Old Testament, the main covenant was between God and people was a covenant that was established on Mount Sinai. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because God initiated and established that covenant with Moses as the mediator between God and people. Now Hebrews, the book of Hebrews they're studying right now, says that, that Mosaic Covenant between God and Israel is now obsolete because Jesus has come along. He is a better priest who mediates a better covenant. This is why verse 6 says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So he has a ministry as a priest that is superior because he mediates a covenant that is superior as well. So a new covenant has come. Now the old covenant, when we look at that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it was designed to be a temporary stepping stone to a greater work of redemption that God would do in the future. Now you may be wondering, why did God enact the old covenant? Well, why not just jump straight ahead to Jesus? And that is a great question. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, but let me just give you a summary in one sentence. The old covenant revealed the sinfulness of humanity, and it also prepared the way for the Messiah, who was Jesus. It revealed sinfulness and prepared the way for Jesus. Now Hebrews 8.5 refers to priests back in Israel, and it says that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. We'll talk more next week about what that phrase means, of a copy and a shadow. But what that shows is that the Old Covenant, which was represented largely by what the priests were doing in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the Old Covenant ultimately pointed to a greater work of redemption that God was going to be doing in the future, ultimately through Jesus. The Old Covenant pointed to the future. We'll talk more about this idea next week. Now, under that Old Covenant, God sent prophets to call his people back to himself because the people of Israel kept breaking the Old Covenant over and over and over. They just kept sinning. And so God would send prophets to call them back to himself. One of those prophets was named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah just kept calling the people back over and over and kept telling them, you all have broken this covenant over and over and over. But then in Jeremiah chapter 31, he turns the corner. He starts talking about a new covenant that God will make. This was recorded hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. But he talked about a new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. It quotes extensively from Jeremiah's teaching about that new covenant. Now, before I read the rest of Hebrews chapter 8, let me give you a quick piece of Bible trivia. Hebrews chapter 8 contains the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. 
It comes from Jeremiah 31. It's the longest text from the Old Testament quoted in its entirety in the New Testament. It occurs right here in Romans 8. Let's read it. We're going to pick up in Romans 8.8. 8. It says, For God finds fault with them. That's the Israelites because of their sin. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern to them. That just shows how he gave them over to judgment, how he allowed them to go into exile. He said, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. But they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now in speaking of a new covenant... God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this talks of a new covenant. Jumping back to Hebrews 8 verse 6, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the author of Hebrews is saying that the new covenant contains promises that God will fulfill. And the promises of the new covenant are better than the promises contained in the old covenant. So based on Jeremiah 31, as recorded in Hebrews 8, we're going to look at three promises the new covenant makes. New covenant promise number one is that God will write his law on people's hearts. We see that in verse 10, which says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Under the old covenant, there are hundreds of laws that Jews were expected to fulfill. And they failed over and over and over. And even when they tried to fulfill all those laws, they were doing it out of their own effort. Yet they would still fail. But the new covenant gives a new way to fulfill God's expectations and God's law. And we are empowered under the new covenant by the Holy Spirit, who transforms us from the inside out, who gives us a new heart, who empowers us to live the way that God is calling us to live. And so now, under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit empowers people's growth. And so when people grow, when people are seeking to apply God's word to their lives, they're not doing it out of their own strength, but out of the strength of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's one promise that the new covenant makes, that God will write his law on people's hearts, empowered by the Holy Spirit. New covenant promise number two is that all covenant members will know the Lord. Now the old covenant was with the nation 
of Israel. And within Israel, you had some people who were devoted to following God and some people who really didn't care much about following God. It's kind of like here in Wisconsin. Some Wisconsinites, many Wisconsinites actually love the Packers, but not all Wisconsinites. There are some Wisconsinites who really don't care for the Packers much at all. And similarly, in Israel, under the old covenant, even though the covenant was with the entire nation, there were people within that nation who cared about God a lot. And there were some people within the nation who really didn't care about God much at all. But under the new covenant, the, the entirety of the people involved in the new covenant will be people who care about God. Because the only people involved in the new covenant are people who come to God by faith in Christ. The new covenant is not with a group of people like a nation. It's with people who have chosen to come to God by faith in Christ. It's not going to be a mixed bag of people who care about God and people who don't. That's why it says in verse 11, They shall all know me. All the people who experience the new covenant will be people who love God through Jesus. It also says, they shall all know me. The reality is, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, some people had a really close relationship with God, but most people were kind of held at a distance. But under the New Covenant, everyone can know God personally through a relationship with God through Jesus. Now let's move on to New Covenant promise number three which is that sins are forgiven fully and definitively. Under the Old Covenant, sins required frequent sacrifices over and over and over and over. They can never fully atone for sin. But under the New Covenant, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, sacrificed on the cross once and for all. It's a sacrifice that does not need to be repeated to be effective. Now, both covenants had major elements of grace, but grace is much more apparent. It's acting in a much stronger manner under the new covenant. That's why verse 12 of Hebrews 8 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, all this, to me, sounds really great. Hopefully it sounds great to you as well. But we must understand that the idea of a new covenant with God through Jesus was deeply disturbing to most Jews. Look with me down at verse 13. It says that in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it's saying the Mosaic law now, because of Jesus, is obsolete. It means all that work that was being done in the temple, all those farmers out there who are raising livestock in order to be sacrificed in the temple day in and day out, their jobs are obsolete now. It's saying the old covenant that shaped so much of what the Israelites did and shaped so much of how they viewed themselves. That is obsolete. And that's hard to take. I mean, I think about the idea of planned obsolescence. I don't like planned obsolescence. I don't like the manufacturers sometimes make things so knowing that they will go out of date, knowing that the technology behind them will fail, will at some point not be updated, or that 
you know, dishwashers, for instance. I'm already on my third dishwasher in the last dozen years. My parents have had a dishwasher for 25. It's because dishwashers now are often made with planned obsolescence. So let me get my off my soapbox of planned obsolescence now. The reality is the old covenant had built in though planned obsolescence. It was becoming obsolete. And just like I do when my dishwasher breaks and wears out after just a few years, or my phone is no longer being updated by Apple because they have planned obsolescence built in, just like that, just like I get upset at that, the people in, in, in Israel who follow Judaism were oftentimes getting upset at the idea of the obsolescence of the Old Covenant. I mean, I was trying to think about what this would be like. What's the closest parallel that we could experience here in America? And I thought what it would be like if a group came along and declared that the Constitution of the United States of America is now obsolete. There's something else that's come along and replaced the U.S. Constitution. You can imagine there would be a quick and urgent outcry of blasphemy, heresy, unpatriotic. That is wrong. But that's how the Jews would have felt, by and large, when the Christians came along and said, no, there's a new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. The reality is people do not like change. But God was doing a new thing through Jesus. He was doing a new thing, but in reality, it was tied into the old thing that he'd always been doing. He'd been dropping hints. He prophesied through Jeremiah hundreds of years earlier that there was going to be a new covenant now that Jesus has arrived in the fullness of time. The new covenant is being initiated. And this new covenant could and should be a source of great joy. Let me tell you a story from the Bible that illustrates the beauty and joy of the new covenant. It's recorded in John chapter 4. Jesus and his disciples were out walking one day. They were on a, on a lengthy journey. They were in a region that's called Samaria. And the people who lived in Samaria did not get along with the Jewish people and vice versa. They despised each other. They despised each other for centuries. Now, while in Samaria, the disciples went into town to buy some food for lunch. And Jesus stayed out of town by a well. In the heat of the day, while Jesus is by that well, there's a Samaritan woman who comes to that well to draw water. The Samaritan woman is obviously a social outcast. She has a messed up background. Other people don't really want to be around her. Her character is stained. On top of that, she is a Samaritan. And remember, Jews and Samaritans normally didn't get along, but Jesus struck up a conversation with her. And they talked about a variety of things. And then in John 4, verse 19, it says, The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now let's pause for a minute. A major source of the disagreement between Jews and Samaritans was where worship should take place. Jews thought it should be in Jerusalem. Samaritans thought it should be in Samaria in a temple on Mount Gerizim. So she's referring to this big historic disagreement. Jesus said, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers 
Worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what was happening here was that Jesus was already living out the new covenant. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here. There's an expectation that was going to be coming for a while. And now through Jesus, it's here. It's the new covenant. And he's living out these, this new covenant right here with this woman. He's saying true worship is not based on location. It's not done in Jerusalem. It can be. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be done in the temple. It can be done anywhere. Because true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit means that our hearts are genuinely genuinely engaged with God in reverence and repentance. True worship is based on worshiping God in truth, which means worshiping God in the way that he's revealed himself through his scripture and through Jesus. And this gave the Samaritan woman so much joy. She's already experienced some of these promises of the new covenant as recorded in Jeremiah 31. She's finding joy in knowing the Lord. She's finding joy in having her sins forgiven. And plus, this shows that even a Samaritan woman with a messed up background can have a right relationship with God. Under the old covenant, that wasn't really possible, at least in the same way, with the same freedom and joy. But for the Samaritan woman, it is. This is a picture of the new covenant at work. Now in closing, I want to make two application points. First of all, depend on Jesus alone to reconcile you with God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator between us and God. That's why he is the priest who can reconcile us with God. You can't get to God on your own good works. A priest or a pastor cannot do it for you, but Jesus can. So depend on Jesus alone to reconcile you with God. This is what gives you entrance into that new covenant relationship with him. So depend on Jesus alone to reconcile you with God. The other application point I want to make this morning is to commit to following Jesus, particularly when Jesus' ways differ from the religious tour guides. At the Kennedy Space Center, if an astronaut and a tour guide disagree on some aspect of space travel, which one are you more likely to believe? I guess we'd probably all believe the astronaut over the tour guide, because the astronaut has so much more training, so much more real-life personal experience with space travel. Now, as we look at the world around us, I would say that there are a lot of religious tour guides. There are lots of uh, TV shows, lots of podcasts, lots of pastors and authors and commentators who are trying to tell us how we should live out our Christian faith. Now, frankly, I would categorize anyone who is a religious influencer as a tour guide, even myself as a pastor. At the end of the day, I would categorize myself in this context as a tour guide. Tour guides aren't necessarily bad. Tour guides can serve very good purposes. And religiously, spiritually, biblically, the best tour guides 
are those who point people to Jesus. It's so important that we are committed to following Jesus. When I think back to that Samaritan woman, I am sure that there would have been lots of religious tour guides who would have pointed her in a lot of different directions than Jesus pointed her. Even Jesus' disciples would have pointed her in a different direction than what Jesus did. This points to the importance of following the ways of Jesus, not the ways of other people. Jesus pointed her in a direction that brought her great joy, that brought her new life, that brought her even into the new covenant with God. I don't think many other religious uh, tour guides would have done that, but Jesus did. Or you think of the Jewish Christians that Hebrews is addressing. They had a lot of religious tour guides trying to guide them back toward Judaism. And that is why Hebrews keeps saying, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, follow Jesus. Because at the end of the day, a, a tour guide is only helpful, religiously or spiritually speaking, if they point us to Jesus in spirit and in truth. Like those Hebrew Christians, we need to commit ourselves to following Jesus, particularly when Jesus' ways differ from the ways we are being called to follow by the religious tour guides. A few days ago, I was listening to a podcast. And just a quick side note, I don't think podcasts are all bad. By, by all means, I think there are good podcasts. But the important thing is that we're constantly comparing what we're hearing with what we see revealed in scripture, especially about Jesus. So on this podcast I was listening to, the commentators were talking about a Christian musician who's gained a lot of popularity and a lot of wealth the last few years as he's been increasingly mixing his Christianity with politics. For him, politics plays a big role in how he presents his Christianity and vice versa. And so on this podcast, I'm listening to this and one of the commentators was talking about reading an article about this musician who is mixing Christianity and politics in a big way. And this commentator says he thought to himself as he read this article, does this guy read the Gospels? This commentator said, I feel like if I could get him for a weekend, I would want to take him on a silent retreat and say, all you can do for the next two days is just read the Gospels. That's it. No music. No talks, no hoopla, just two days of silent reflection on the Gospels. He says, I'd love to then hear you talk at the end of those two days on what you think. Because I don't know how you can come to the conclusions and actions you're taking if you're trying to live a life rooted in the Gospels. I think this is right on from the angle of we need to come back to Jesus as revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It calls us to ask ourselves the question, am I spending regular time reading in, in Scripture for myself? Or am I only getting it digested and read back to me, given back to me, interpreted by others, by tour guides who may or may not have my best interests in mind, who may or may not be faithfully representing Jesus? That's the beauty of being able to have the Bible for ourselves, is that we can dig into it for ourselves. Be like the Christians recorded in Acts chapter 17 in Berea, 
It says that they heard the message that the Apostle Paul was preaching each day. They took it each day and compared it with what was written in Scripture. We need to be doing that. And I would especially commend to us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Be digesting those, those books on a regular basis in order to familiarize ourselves on deeper and deeper levels with Jesus himself. Because we live in a culture that can pull us this way and that. Just like those Hebrew Christians, they face pressure. We do too. To pull us any variety of different ways. And it's so important that we are focusing ourselves on the center of Christianity, which is worshiping God through Jesus in spirit and in truth based on the new covenant. So let's be committed to following Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to give us a new covenant. As Israel demonstrated over and over, it's impossible to keep laws on your own strength. Lord, we fail, we falter. There's ultimately no one who seeks you in spirit and truth on our own power, but we thank you Jesus, that you sacrificed on our behalf to pay for our sins. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do a regenerating and rejuvenating work in us to renew us from the inside out. That if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We thank you for these new covenant promises, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to you, that you welcome us to yourself with open arms, just like you did the Samaritan woman just like you've done so many others down through the centuries, even the Apostle Paul, even as he was persecuting Christians, you welcomed them to yourself with open arms. What amazing grace that is. We thank you for your grace, Lord. I pray that none of us will miss out on the greatness and the promises that are available to us through Jesus in this new covenant. And I pray that we will find joy in following him and learning more about him along the journey. We pray these things in Jesus' name.